Well, I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Now, if you're smart, and I know you are, you'll know that we're in the middle of a series on Romans. And if you're smart, and I know you are, then you'll know we're in chapter 7. And if you're curious, and I know you are, you're going to know that last week we set up the fact that there's a very controversial issue ahead of us in the passage in Romans that we needed to tackle, which we're going to tackle next week. Someone asked me this morning, Have you still un- are you still undecided? Are you still trying to figure out what you, uh, what you think? And the, the answer is no, I'm not. I've, uh, I'm pretty uh, firmly convinced of what I believe Romans chapter 7 teaches. But I just want to uh, bear my heart a little bit with you this morning. Uh, tonight, if I can give you an invitation to come back, we're going to have perhaps one of the most important meetings in our church, uh, at least since I've been here. I am hardly able to sleep. I'm so excited about what the Lord is doing and our elder team, some different um, ideas and initiatives that we want to, to kick off here at our church to really help us to be more faithful to what the passage before us is going to teach. And that's the Great Commission. To define our church ministry by biblical parameters. To understand our ecclesiology by the theology that's rooted in genuine, inspired, illumined inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the scriptures. I, uh, I don't want to overstate it, but if you miss tonight... You're going to keep asking people, what did they say? What do they talk about? It? We're, 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 not, you know, we're not moving the church across the street. We're not going to take over the skateboard park, although that would be a good thing to take over. Uh, we're just going to talk about some things that I think you're going to be really excited about. Um, it's been a, I sleep really well. And if you ask my wife, I probably sleep a little too well. I, I don't remember going to bed uh, and, and, and staying awake more than about 45 seconds. Um, if I'm horizontal, it's pretty much over. And that's not been the case in the last week or so, thinking about what the Lord is doing. I've been so excited. So is that enough of a tease to come back tonight? The right answer is, yes, that is enough of a tease to come back tonight. We'll be talking about our future rolling out a special initiative that you indeed will want to know about. But in order to prepare us to think in the right categories about uh, some new accents and some new uh, focus and a more strategic direction in our church body. I want us to reconsider the Great Commission. This is a passage with which you are very familiar. It's a passage you have no doubt heard about and heard preached uh, by many pastors uh, to your soul. I know that you may have taught it yourself and that's all okay. But we're going to look at it in some fresh ways this morning. Matthew 28 It's the very end of Matthew's gospel, beginning in verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain or the hill country, which Jesus had assigned, designated. When they saw him, they worshipped. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying... All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always Forever, even to the end of the age. Confession time. I grew up in Tennessee. I love Tennessee. I lived for almost three decades in Los Angeles. I like Los Angeles. I love Kansas City. My family and I love the fact that God moved us here to Kansas City. We have the Chiefs. And the Royals. Can you believe we're talking about the Royals in September? And it doesn't include the phrase next year. (laughs) We have the sporting. Kim and I went uh, uh, with the Bondurants to a sporting uh, uh, match uh, a couple weeks ago. And it was amazing. We have the Country Club Plaza. Nothing like a walk around the plaza with a hot drink and the Christmas lights on, is there? We have a revitalized downtown 
We have the Sprint Center. We have Union Station. We get to go to the Kauffman Center. Worlds of Fun. The Kansas City Zoo. Starlight Theater. We have the College Basketball Experience and the College Basketball Hall of Fame. We have the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art. We have the Negroes League Baseball Museum. We have the Truman Presidential Library. Here in Kansas City, we are the residents of the, 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 what resides with us at, actually is the Liberty Memorial, the World War I National Museum, two major rivers. We have Shawnee Mission Park. We have more fountains than Rome. They turn off half the year, but that's another issue. You can't find a 30-minute drive if you try, even in rush hour. We have Cabela's. <laughs> I know we have Bass Probable. We have, we have Cabela's. When I was candidating, one of the things that the elders did is they took me straight to Cabela's. <laughs> and I walked in and said, these are my people. So, <laughs> not the animals, the people I was with. Here's what I uh, did with some, uh, some research on Kansas City. In 2014, Kansas City was named, are you ready for this? The th- of, all the country, of all the cities in our country, it was the third most manly city in the country. <laughs> That's the one you clap over. <laughs> uh, by the way, number one and number two were Charlotte uh, uh, and uh, Columbus, uh, Ohio. So I was a little bit surprised by that. But I'm happy to be in the top five. You knew it was coming, don't you? Didn't you? And we have the best barbecue in the world. Hundreds of barbecue restaurants. Oklahoma Joe's. You need to know that Oklahoma Joe's is indeed changing their name to Joe's KC. Joe's KC. Thank you very much. You know this too, huh? I love Kansas City. I love the four seasons. Just getting up yesterday morning and feeling that. That crisp air and thinking fall is coming. Every season makes you enjoy it and long for the next one. It's wonderful. As of 2014, Kansas City metro area population is, are you ready for this? 2,035,166 people. Since 2000, it's got one of the top rates of growth in the whole country. Since 2000, we've grown 10%, actually 10.85%, almost 11%. You say, why tell us all that? Here's the point. Of all the things I love about Kansas City, of all the things that we just listed that we can enjoy in Kansas City, of all the things that we get to go participate in in Kansas City in the metropolitan area, there are over two million souls, eternal souls that God has put us in the middle and in the midst of to have an impact. That's significant. I love all the parts about Kansas City. If anybody's going to enjoy those parts of Kansas City, it ought to be a Christian who can glorify God in the enjoyment of those things. But we have a perspective on our city that unbelievers don't have. It is our mission field, and it's our mission to reach them. I know there's 2,033,000 people, but let's change our thinking. There's 2,033,000 souls who will spend eternity somewhere. I tried to do the calculation, and I couldn't figure it out, but I'm wondering just how many cars. I'm always distracted by these cars in the middle of preaching when I look out the window because I just think they're not here doing this with us. It it, it serves to break your heart. This is where God has put us, in Kansas City. It's where he's put our church. And it's where he's called us to execute his mission. We are on loan to this world by God to do his bidding until he calls us to our eternal home. William Carey said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. 
Isn't that good? This is a man who gave his life to go to India. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. I often wonder if God yawns at our prayers when he says he will, he's ready and able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. And when we ask God stuff, I wonder if he, in the fellowship of the Trinity or in the fellowship with the angels, says, that's all they got. They're asking about someone's surgery, and we should. And yet, put them in the middle of two million people as my representative to tell these souls how they can spend forever with him in pure joy, in absolute fellowship, in unending joy, rather than in a tortured, real, and abiding, eternal hell away from his love and comfort. I want us to stop this morning and think about our mission here at Mission Road Bible Church. I remember talking to Jim Fordyce when I was uh, first looking at Mission Road and uh, just about the name, Mission Road Bible Church. Did God give us a gift with that? Mission Road Bible Church. We say it every Sunday, but let let me let you hear it with fresh ears. Mission Road Bible Church, you and I exist to magnify God, to make much of a great God. And to spread a passion for his glory to let these two million souls understand that there is a great God and a sufficient Savior who can save them from their sin and promise them eternal joy with him in heaven forever. By making disciples, that's evangelism. Shepherding them, that's discipleship. To value Jesus Christ above all else, that's the goal of the Christian life. In every dimension of life, it's comprehensive. There's no time when we turn the light switch off on our glory, glorifying of God. As regulated by the word of God, we are Mission Road Bible Church. We believe that the Bible is the living and errant word of God, that every word of it is true, that there's no part that is to be taken in, in, in exception to the rest, that it all feeds the, the understanding of the, of the other parts, that it's... Our only way to understand and know God. We understand that God has left us a book. He didn't leave us a video. He didn't leave us a, a YouTube video. He, he left us a book. And he said, this is, I'm, I'm going to put my word in print so that you can interpret it, understand it, apply it, study it. It's not like a, 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 the, the, the proverbial you know, car wreck that you have five people witness and you get five different stories. He said, no, I'm going to put it in print. You can study it together. Now, the book of Matthew is a really interesting book. Of, of, the, other four, of the four gospels, it's unique in that it's intended to present that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the global king because he's the promised king of the Jews. And the promised king of the Jews was promised to be the king of the world. Those aren't in conflict. They go in concert with each other. Matthew cycles and highlights several themes in his gospel. He, he says things, he makes a point, he backs away from it. He comes back and he makes that point again. And these points are, are global, they're, they're magnanimous in their understanding and application. And this final section, these final few verses, is really a summary and a microcosm of all the themes of the whole book. For example, the first is um, the move from the particular to the universal in the preaching of the gospel and kingdom. All throughout Matthew, you see him talking about preaching the kingdom to the Jews, preaching the kingdom to the Decapolis, preaching the kingdom to different groups of people. But he backs away and says, it's not just to them, it's to everybody. And he does that here. He universalizes the appeal of the gospel. Secondly, it's discipleship and the establishment of the church. It's in Matthew 16 where we read the the most... uh, uh, detailed version of Jesus saying, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It's very church oriented. Thirdly, Jesus commands, all he's, he commands is really the ultimate incumbent responsibility on Christians. Matthew's very clear when you study the gospel of Matthew to, to know that he's not just talking about those people in Judea, those people in Galilee. He universalizes it to all those who believe in his name. And lastly, one of the unique observances of Matthew is 
the abiding presence of Jesus as an instructor. More than any other gospel, you see Jesus as the teacher, the teacher, the master, the instructor, the rabbi. And as such, he's the son of God, the risen sovereign Lord of the universe. Matthew has all those themes and all of those come together in this final commissioning of the disciples. A little context, verse 16. The 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. It's literally not a mountain. It could have been Arbel, which is uh, on the uh, edge of Galilee. It's probably the hill country. It's more likely that area uh, that that Jesus would have delivered the, the Sermon on the Mount. It's just the hill country. He had a meeting point. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some were doubtful. Now, just a little context. This doesn't believe that only the, this doesn't mean that only the 11, they were the only people there. The fact that some doubted strongly suggests that more than the 11 were there. Obviously, 11 minus 1, which is Judas. Just, can you hold your finger there? There's an interesting note in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that, that, that many people say, when did that happen? What happened there? Look over at 1 Corinthians 15 for a minute. Paul's summarizing the gospel and he says in verse 1 now I make known to you brethren the good news the gospel which I preached to you which also you received in which you stand also by which also you were saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Most people stop right there. Have you ever looked at verse 6? After that, after his resurrection, he appeared to more than 500 brethren This is critical. At one time. Most of whom are dead. They've fallen asleep. When did that happen? I agree with most scholarship that says that happened here in Matthew 28. There's this gathering of people. Over 500 people who saw Jesus who was confirmed to be dead by the Romans. Alive, well, teaching Also helps us understand why some were doubtful. You say, how could some be doubtful? Do you really need to ask that question? I'm not being irreverent. Have you ever been to a funeral? Can you imagine going to a funeral and a week later seeing the person who was in the casket up alive teaching and, and walking around? Would you be scratching your head as well? That sets up what we call the Great Commission here in verses 18 and following. I want to look very simply this morning at the Great Commission. The Great Commission involves two personal and corporate mandates. The Great Commission involves two personal and corporate mandates. They're personal because we all have to do them. They're corporate because it's what the church is also called to do. Two personal and corporate mandates involved in the Great Commission. The first is making disciples. Making disciples. Look at verse 18. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. This is evangelism 101. Now, what I love about the scripture is the scriptures is that what we tend to get all uptight about and we tend to get polarized about, what we tend to accent and make extreme on one way or the other, the scripture doesn't do that. Let me ask you a question. Who ultimately sovereignly makes disciples? God does, right? Does everyone believe that God is sovereign in salvation? Yes. Did Jesus himself have any trouble looking the disciples and vicariously us in the eye and say, you go make disciples? 
Now here's the question. Are those in conflict? No, they're in concert. We are, evangelism is nothing more than finding the elect. You don't know who the elect are. So you evangelize everybody. You go try to make disciples. I love what Spurgeon says. I believe like a Calvinist and I preach like an Arminian. I like that. We, it's not for us to know, so we preach. We, we make disciples. Whatever, whatever resources we have within our power to reach out and share the gospel, we employ them. It shows the heart of God and the call of Jesus. Make disciples. Now, there's a, a misunderstanding in the English here that's, that's easily overlooked. And the, the first word of verse um, 19 in the imperative, it uh, looks like an imperative. It's really a participle. It says going, uh, excuse me, it says go. Uh, the Greek text implies it's as you're going. It's a participle. It's not a verb. It's not a, a second person uh, command. There is a second person command here. Mathetusite. The, the central verb in the Great Commission is make disciples. That's the verb. And the participles tell us how to do that. Where to go and make disciples. Your mission, our mission is to make disciples. It's to tell people about Jesus. It's to offer them the salvation call of God in Christ. It's to tell them they can be forgiven of their sins and spend a joyful eternity with God. It's, it's a very simple mission. It can be given to a four-year-old and it ought to chase the 90-year-old into his joy in heaven. It's noteworthy that Jesus gives this in Galilee. Now, if you look at the last week of, um, uh, the, the week rather after the resurrection, it's really interesting. Um, you, you find Jesus, he comes to his disciples and you would think they would have this family reunion and set up a, a week-long uh, feast. And he, he, but if you notice, he comes and goes. He shows up in a room, he disappears. He's there, he's gone, he's there, he's gone. But he finally tells his disciples, meet me in Galilee. That's a hundred miles away. On a good day, on, 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 with, with people who were in shape, it was about a three-day journey. That tells you a little bit about their thighs, right? They can walk, you know, 30 miles in a day. Less than a week, half a week. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says, I'll go ahead, I'll meet you north. I'll meet you in Galilee. Well, I'll meet you 100 miles away. Why? Well, first of all, I think that he wanted clearly to establish the kingdom of gospel outreach, the spiritual kingdom of people coming to know Christ in a different setting than Jerusalem. Secondly, I don't know where those guys could have met, where it would have been uh, undercover. I mean, can you imagine uh, the, just the Romans themselves who took Jesus off the cross, who buried Jesus? They've got to deal with this idea of a resurrection, first of all. And can you imagine if, if he shows up Right there, it would have been an absolute distraction. Now, he is going to show up and that message is going to get out, but not until after he establishes the mission. So he ends up going north to Galilee, which is largely Gentile country. Isn't it amazing how God lined our Bible reading up in Mark this morning with this? It's the same area. He, he goes to Gentile country. Why? Because he is absolutely clear from the very beginning that the gospel is not simply a Jewish sect. Hold your finger there for just a moment and go over to Acts chapter 1. This is a week or so after the resurrection. At the moment of his ascension when he leaves the, the disciples. He says, you will receive, verse 8, my, receive power from the Holy Spirit when he's come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses. And now we find out something. In Jerusalem, that would have been a no-brainer. Of course, this is Jewish Messiah. Why wouldn't he be known in Jerusalem? And in all Judea, uh-oh, Jews and Gentiles live in all Judea. And in Samaria, now you got a problem. Now you got ethnic tension. You got half breeds. You got interracial uh, uh, um, Jews and Gentiles. And if that's not even a uh, uh, sticking point enough, he says, and even to the remotest part of the earth, 
I won't take the time to talk about this now, but notice it doesn't say the remotest parts of the earth. The remotest part is singular. You go to the very end of the earth until the last person who's never heard the gospel has heard. Don't stop. That's what he means when he says, go make disciples of all the nations. God is not a racist now, we think of that in, in our American context with, with skin color. That, our racial tensions know nothing of the Jew-Gentile racial distinctions of the, of the New Testament times. So when he says, make disciples of all nations, you understand, he's, he's actually telling Jews who thought that salvation was only through them to go into non-Jewish areas to tell people about the gospel. If you think this is hard to to swallow, it bothered Paul. Paul kept saying, I want to go tell the Jews. And God said, you can evangelize Jews, but I want you to go to the Gentiles. And even, even with that, where was the first place he went in every city? The synagogue. Now he got out of the synagogue, but that was his heart to go there first. God is telling the disciples here, listen, the gospel is intended for everyone. We have two million souls, two million souls around us who will live somewhere in eternity based on what they do with the gospel that they may or may not understand. Second Corinthians 1 says sometimes the gospel brings the aroma of life to life and sometimes brings the aroma of of death to death, meaning, this is hard to swallow, meaning that sometimes our evangelism is actually confirming people's rejection of the gospel so they know exactly what they are saying no to. This is important. We have so much confusion about what the mission of the church is. Just find anyone who calls himself a Christian. Have conversations with ourselves. And if you just say, what is the church about? What's the mission of the church? What are we really called to do? Well, you'll hear things like this. It's, they may not say this, but it ends up being a social alternative to the world. It's a place where we have social stuff, where, where we get good and not drunk. It's a place where we, we have social issues, where we, we have food and, and have uh, friends. It's a social alternative to the world. Now, don't let that mitigate the fact that God has given us fellowship with people we would otherwise not have fellowship with except for the gospel. That, that's great. That's another passage and another sermon. But the mission of the church, did Jesus die so that we could get together for potlucks? Although potlucks are okay. It's not a social alternative to the world. Just a little footnote to that. I see many youth ministries thinking in that category. That they're trying to be a social alternative to the world. That's not what our youth ministry exists for. Adam and Trevor are both building these, these ministries. Junior high and high school. Ben and John, Luke in the college. Building our ministries on the fact that we believe that young people can understand and execute the mission of the church. Which is the Great Commission. It's not a social alternative to the world. We have fellowships, but we don't just... This is not the, the good club and as opposed to the bad clubs. Probably the greatest temptation for people to misunderstand the mission today is coming uh, fast and furious. You see it, you're reading about it. Books are being spilled over the, the edge of uh, printing presses at an, an epic clip on this. And that is that the church is to execute justice and mercy in the world. You seen that one? Justice, it's, it's, the gospel is supposed to alleviate stardom, uh, 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 not stardom, starvation. It should alleviate stardom, starvation. In other words, we're to go to Africa and, and fix all the wells. And I think Christians should be involved in that, but that's not our mission. He didn't say go into all the world and solve world hunger. We should offer a cup of water. We should be ready to feed some light. We should be able to to dispense with our worldly treasures in order for someone's betterment. But that's not going to impact eternity. It's not the mission of the church. John MacArthur writes this. Is social reconstruction even an appropriate way for Christians to spend their energies? 
I recently mentioned to a friend that I was working on a book dealing with the sin, with sin and our culture's declining moral climate. He immediately said, be sure you urge Christians to get actively involved in reclaiming society. The main problem is that Christians haven't acquired enough influence in politics, art, and entertainment uh, to be able to turn things around for the good. MacArthur goes on, that, I acknowledge, is a common view held by many Christians, but I'm afraid I don't agree. God's purpose in this world and the church's only legitimate commission is the proclamation of the message of sin and salvation to individuals whom God sovereignly redeems and calls out of the world. Look, I hope we're going to have an impact on our world. I I hope that we're... uh, I don't want to be the Christian who litters, but stopping littering isn't the mission. Another one that we fight all the time is the misunderstanding is that the church is the moral compass or the political conscience of our nation. Study the history of the church and see where that's ever worked out. Study the history of the world. Uh, We can be restrained in, in, in some measure, but if we get people to stop having abortions, which we should be passionate about, that does not make them go to heaven. That's collateral. That's subordinate to the Great Commission. So what's the Great Commission? Make disciples. Make Christians. Get people to understand and believe the gospel. We've talked about it over and over. The gospel is three parts. It's a set of facts. We read that in 1 Corinthians 15. It's facts that are true. It's theology about those facts. And it's a response to those theological facts. That's the gospel. Now, some of you may be saying, well, I don't know if I... I understand who, just for the record, no one I know ever feels truly adequate in an evangelistic moment. We get, everyone gets nervous. Everyone says, am I saying enough? What's the lowest common denominator? What do I have to talk about? Do I have to get into six-day creation? Do I have to talk about the resurrection? What, where are the parameters where someone has to believe in order to be saved? Let me just say it this way. If you know enough to be saved, you know enough to evangelize. And at the same time, if you don't know enough to evangelize someone, you don't know enough to be saved. Don't leave evangelism for those people who are better at it than you and me. There are people gifted in evangelism. There's there's no question. What does Peter say? I love it. Be ready. Always be on the alert to give a defense for the hope in the Bible. That's not what he says. Be ready to give a defense for the hope where? Within you, Paul, he stands before Felix, before Agrippa, and he tells his testimony. The greatest theologian to ever live just said, let me tell you what Jesus did to me and about me at the cross and communicated to me on the road to Damascus. Let me tell you my testimony. Start there. Everyone has that. If you're a Christian, you have a testimony. Start with what God did in your heart. It's really hard to do that without getting all the elements of the gospel in and remember, though, what we're up against. We won't take the time to turn here now, but 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that we are up against every influence of hell. The, the, Satan and his demons want this, this mission to fail. We're also up against the principalities that, the, that, that are working in the government, in, in society, in the world, that come against us culturally. To the point where if we are faithful... You have your seatbelt on? If we are faithful to do the Great Commission, you are insured, you are promised, you are guaranteed to be looked at in the eye and called foolish. If we're not considered foolish, we're not being faithful. Sometimes, it's happened to me twice that I remember I remember I was a youth pastor and I, and I, I preached and a, a guy, um, Kim is Chris at DCD in Detroit. Chris asked me out for lunch, went out to lunch with him. It was on Saturday. It, this has never happened to me. He says, Rick, I've been coming to church for a few weeks and you were talking about the gospel. He says, what do I have to do to become a Christian? And I remember going, uh, 
uh, I was so shocked. <laughs> I wasn't ready for, for that question. Um, we, we got through the question. Most of the time it doesn't happen like that. Most of the time, most of the time, people will dismiss you as being old-fashioned, ancient, narrow-minded, you name it, right? You've been called that. And that's okay. Do you understand what they did to our Savior? Paul says, I gladly take the blows for him because he took the cross for me. If they can't get to Jesus, they will get to you. We're still the enemy. But the Lord's bondservant is not quarrelsome, kind, able to teach, if perhaps they can win some to the gospel, Paul told Timothy. So what's the mission? It's to make disciples. Now, I think we all understand that part. We get that. And we need to have a, you know, the old uh, uh, cowboy boot uh, kicking us down the road to, to tell us to do that better and more and more faithfully. And you can, all you have to do to be convicting as a preacher is preach on evangelism or prayer because no one does enough of it. Right? And we ought to do more evangelism and more prayer. There's a second part, though, of the Great Commission that really involves not us going out there, but what we do in here. And the second part is this, maturing disciples. We make disciples, and then we mature them. We, we, we make them more solid. We make them more mature. We mature disciples. Now we come to the participles, the three participles, going, baptizing, teaching. Those are the three participles that lean on the main verb of making disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father as you're going. Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Going, baptizing, teaching. Let's break those down. Going. This is the mission's implication. Both personally and corporately. You can't get a hallway pass around going personally. Now, I appreciate John Piper's mantra. He says, you go, you send, or, uh, or you disobey. I, I believe that. I get that. But typically, we think of the goers as the people who are going overseas. You're going to go into a mission field this afternoon. You may, you may go into a mission field in the car on the way home. You are called, I am called to always be on. There's never a day off in the Great Commission. We are going. This doesn't say go if you're a missionary. The missionaries say, hey, this is our verse. We're going to go. I love missionaries, but they can't have this verse alone. It's ours too. We are to be going. Going. Looking for God to bring opportunities. Then baptizing. It's the identification of a person as a visible part of the church. This is why we reject infant baptism. It happens in concert with, as a result of belief. It's a public, and I should say passive, it's a public and passive statement of your faith. You say, why passive? Nowhere does it say baptize yourself. It says be baptized. It's a passive. Someone should do this to you and for you. Notice also how how serious he is about baptism. You do it in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The entire force of the Trinity, the entire accountability of the Trinity is on baptism. So a little footnote, unashamed little point of conviction. Have you been baptized since you've been redeemed, since you've been saved? If you haven't, please. That's the easiest part of obedience you could ever do you let someone do it to you you claim christ you affirm christ and they put you underwater that's way easier than fighting covetousness isn't it don't you wish that you could get in a in a pool and say okay i'm going to baptize you and you'll never struggle with materialism again splash it's not how it works but you can get in the baptistry and Honor Christ by giving testimony to the fact that you believe him. You're now identifying yourself with him. It's, if you haven't done it, do it. Relieve the guilt. And I, I know that some people say, yeah, but 
it's been a long time and I've put it off. And what will people think? Let me tell you exactly what people think. Let me tell you what they'll think. They'll think, oh, that's great. He's being baptized. That's great. She's being baptized. They're not going to stay out there and go, I know that. I knew it. I knew there was something wrong in their life. This is the sin in Aiken's camp. I knew that there was an issue there. That's not how it works out. It's a point of obedience. Jesus said to do it. If you haven't done it, do it, please. It's easy. If someone does it to you, don't you wish that other things in your sanctification could work out so easily? Going, baptizing, teaching. Now we find discipleship. Teaching. Teaching. Teaching is the DNA of Christian growth. Discipling, mentoring should be the spine of a church's health where believers are interacting and teaching each other, correcting each other, instructing each other in what Jesus is and has taught us, teaching them what I've commanded you. Don't miss the fact that there's an implied accountability written into this verse. Teaching them, look at the word, to observe. You see that? To observe, to obey what I've commanded you. This is lordship salvation. Obedience is not an option for a Christian. Perfection is not a possibility as a Christian either. We, we have sin, we have to confess. There's no question. But the, the direction and the trajectory of our life is to make sure that we are trying. So we're going to get here in Romans 7 and in Romans 8. We're trying with all of our might is the word to obey. And when we don't, He is faithful who hears the confession of our sins to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is true Christian community. This is what we talked about two Sunday nights ago regarding, or maybe it's last Sunday night, regarding discipleship. Discipleship is not to be lent only to the teachers, to the elders, to the deacons, to the Sunday school instructors. You and I have an obligation. We are commanded to be in discipleship relationships. We're teaching and instructing others. And others are teaching and instructing us. It's, discipleship is a spiritual friendship. It doesn't always work out like one is higher, one is lower. I mean, it may end up being that, but sometimes it goes like this. It's correcting one another. It's instructing one another. It's sitting around a table and opening your Bible and saying, what does this mean? It's moving from appreciating the truth to applying the truth. Underlining the verse doesn't mean I'm living the verse. Putting it in my car and taping it to my bathroom uh, mirror doesn't mean I've applied it. You know when you know you applied it? You've applied it? It hurts. It stings. And it brings the smile of God, the well done statement of God to our progressive sanctification. Who are you discipling? And who is discipling you? What spiritual friendships do you have? The reason we exist together is not just to come and say, hey, nice tie, hey, nice dress, that's great. It's to come together and to be involved with each other's lives. We can talk about the weather and we can talk about uh, college football. That's okay, but it has to go beyond that. That's why we have care groups. It's hard to do discipleship. It's hard to do the one another's in 10 or 15 minutes before or after church. Especially when you can't hear in the atrium, but that's for another time. That's true Christian community. It involves knowing and dispensing truth, receiving truth, and applying truth, correcting and being corrected by truth. Are you, are you willing to disciple? That's one question, but here's another question. Are you willing to be discipled? Are you willing to lay your life in front of someone else and say, Help me love our Savior. That's humility. That's the glue that binds us together. We're a community growing together so that we can go tell people out. Those two million souls wandering around Kansas City so aimlessly. We can tell them, come be a part of a community of believers who love Christ enough to be involved with each other's lives. That's discipleship. That's what Titus 2 commands us. Now, let me give you a little insight into what we're going to do tonight. We've talked before about the fact that the church has three resources, right? Church has three resources. It has human resources. It's people. 
Somebody has to work in the nursery. Somebody has to teach. Somebody has to do this. Somebody has to set up. Somebody has to tear down. We have human resources. It's people. God has told us in his word. We have human resources that are at our availability to accomplish biblical ministry. Another resource we have is buildings and budgets. It's capital resources, right? It's, uh, it's money we spend. It's a place we meet. It's having air conditioning. It's having heat. It's, it's having a, uh, all, all the infrastructure that allows us to do ministry in an isolated place. And it, it also allows us to send people to uh, employ uh, pastors and teachers. And it's capital resources. And the third resource is divine resources. And I think that if I can have a moment of confession, it's really easy for me. I hope I don't lose all my credibility here. It's really easy for me when thinking about solving problems in our church, in any church, to think about people and money and then God. What of, of, of human resources, capital resources, and divine resources, which is the best resource? I mean, do we have to have a discussion or a debate about that? Which one do we typically think through the most? One or two. We, we have an opportunity to pray to God tonight about some things. I, I'm, I'm tempted to say let's just stay here for another couple hours and we can have our meeting right now. To lean on a divine resource. I have never been a group. We've had dozens of hours of discussion over the last two weeks with our elders. And I've never seen a group of men come together so united and say, this is where God seems to be leading us in a way that we can't wait to follow him. You say, what does it involve? You got to come back tonight. (laughs) But it involves all three of those. Human, capital, and divine Resources. Are we using all three to accomplish the great commission? We have an opportunity to reach a great city. Do you love Kansas City? I hope you love Kansas City. Kim and I thank God regularly. God, thank you for bringing us to here. And it's, some of it's not even spiritual. I remember us walking around the plaza last year with the hot cocoa and the Christmas lights were off and just saying... Thank you, Lord. After we said no to the guy who wanted to give us the ride on the horse carriage. Thank you, Lord. For the, this, is, this is such common grace that, that we get to enjoy. Amen. Yesterday morning. I mean, did you, did you feel it yesterday morning? It was, did you think, what a God, when you felt that, that cool breeze? What a God. It's, I love Kansas City, but I love the opportunity more. God has put us together. In this place, for this city, and I don't think we should be interested in having a Christian club, but being missionaries. Let's reach a great city with a great commission because God has truly given us a great church. I, I'm trying to find a word, but I can't, I'll use the word. I regularly boast and brag about what God's doing at Mission Road. I love to tell people. There, there's a couple of people I've known who've been pastors. Who you, Pastors get together at conferences and stuff. And sometimes they, they talk about their, their churches like you would never want a husband or a wife to talk about their spouse. Oh, all these... Oh. I just, it's really tough for me because I can't, I can't even, I can't engage that. I just say, we have a great church. God is doing amazing things. We're, we're about to, have, we run out of seats. You know why we run out of seats? Because you're doing gospel ministry. And so what do we do about that? You got to come back in about six hours. And we'll tell you, listen. This is high-level manipulation. You don't want to miss tonight. Let's bow together. Your heads bowed. You can't be a part of the Great Commission unless you're a redeemed person. I just want to encourage you. If you don't understand the gospel, 
if you have hesitated, if you want to be baptized and follow Christ in obedience, please talk to some people around you. Our prayer room will be open. Uh, Luke and Bethany will be uh, there to stand and receive you and pray with you, to talk with you, uh, talk about church membership. Please come and talk to us. Don't leave with the burden of your soul on your conscience. We have a great Savior and can tell you how you can be invited into a saving relationship with him. No fear of dread, no fear of hell, no fear of condemnation. Only looking forward to the joy of heaven with him and peace and patience and understanding in this life. Father, I, I can't wait to see what you're going to do in the next week and month and years and decades before you return here in this body. Forgive us for looking at things like a declining, aging building and what seems like an unmanageable unmanageable debt. Forgive us for looking at those things in such a way that would detract us from seeing all the good things you are doing and all the blessings you've poured out on us. Please, Father, lead us in a way that will impact two million souls in our city. Burden us. Weigh us down with your heart to see people come to saving knowledge of Jesus. Help us to gather tonight to hear from the elders, these godly men who you've pulled together to give leadership to us and to hear of some new initiatives impossible initiatives things that we could never do and if they happen we can only point to you and say what a God look what he did we want so badly to be faithful forgive us when we're not forgive us when we're not mindful of being faithful encourage us convict us and give us the grace to sacrifice because we have a great Savior. In whose name we pray, amen.